Welcome to Wise Up Governance and Boards podcast, brought to you by Three Wise Owls Governance Consultants. Covering hot topics in governance, risk, latest regulatory changes, and issues keeping directors and executives awake at night. Here are your hosts, Ainsley Cunningham and Deb Anderson. Welcome to another episode of Wise Up. Today we're joined by Pat Howard. He is the CEO of MSL Solutions Limited. Uh, so, um, and Pat is a current board member of Queensland Rugby Union, um, formerly a performance director of Leicester Tigers from March to December, and formerly the executive general manager of team performance of Cricket Australia. So, um, Pat joined Cricket Australia back in 2011 and during the period Pat has overseen World Cups and Ashes in the men's and women's program, number one in all formats but men's T20 currently rec- ranked second and seen developments in coach education, pathway changes and restructuring of domestic competitions. Pat started his sporting career while studying a pharmacy degree at the University of Queensland He went on to become a Rugby Union International at 19, winning numerous awards as a player and later as a coach. Pat has a full blue from the University of Queensland. In 2004, he became Director of Rugby at Leicester Tigers, considered the leading professional rugby club in Britain. Pat was 2007 European Director of Rugby and the first person to be European Coach in 2007 and Player of the Year in 2001. In 2007, he moved back to Australia to become General Manager of the High Performance Unit of Australian Rugby Union, where he was responsible for the recruiting of the 2007 to 2013 Wallabies Management. Pat spent three years as COO of Cromwell Property Group, ASX 200, one of the Queensland's largest listed companies with three operating segments, property investment, funds management and property development. He was responsible for the day-to-day management of the business, including HR, IT and administration. For a period in the role, he was also Head of Property Services. Pat is also Joint Founder and Director of a pharmacy management business, which now has 18 pharmacies in three states. Pat is married with four children. Welcome, Pat. Wow. It is funny when um, you're reading those things. They uh, they're very pitched at a very different uh, audience, but look, it's um, it's lovely to hear it back at yourself sometimes. But thank you for having us. Yes, no, definitely. A very varied um, section of sport and pharmacy and a bit of property. Yeah, it's been a schizophrenic career, um, <laughs> but uh, no, and and it's funny, isn't it? One of the first roles I had in leaving Cromwell uh, was to build to be. In, in charge of the National Cricket Centre when it got developed. So it's amazing that whilst there may seem on the surface no continuity, it's amazing what every role you learn something for your next role. And cricket has had many instances of very public crisis management. It's amazing the environment we're in today is, you know, very much um, dealing with situations that are new and you have to be able to plan for it and react to it. So um, it's... It is a really interesting, you learn something from every role you do. Absolutely. So um, being the Executive General Manager for Team Performance at Cricket Australia at the time, um, were you around at the time of um, Steve Smith and Dave Warner? 
Yeah, so I was in the room when I'm the one that told Steve and Dave what their um, uh, punishments or, or sanctions would be. Um, I had to deliver that uh, to the team as well. I was in uh, both in Johannesburg when you delivered those and in Cape Town when the issue happened. I had to get to Cape Town very quickly. I'd, I'd been with the women's team in India at the time, so I flew across and dealt with that in my role so uh and and that was quite common in sport you have um very public issues and um so you have to deal with things relatively quickly um you have to be able to balance public perception with uh boardroom sentiments um you need to be able to deal with precedents that may not always um be obvious to the external so it's a really interesting um process that you you get better at over time i think as australians being so passionate about sport it's you know it's it's very disheartening isn't it when you have to deal with those sorts of issues it's quite challenging yeah look it can be and look i think um you have a a challenge in when it's uh, and look, I think I think actually every country is quite passionate about their sport. That I've been, I lived in the UK, I lived in Ireland. Uh, you know, when you're listening to certain accents on this this um, on this call, we know that not everybody's from Australia as well. So uh, <laughs> I understand that. And and but look, you know, every country has their issues in sport. You've got to. Um, you know, Deborah, I'm, I know in the New Zealand they've had challenges over times as well. I know both CEOs of the previous CEO of New Zealand rugby and the current CEO of, um, of New Zealand cricket, and they're in the challenges all the time. And because they're public, you have to be able to deal with public sentiment. It's never in the middle. It's rarely balanced. It's either elation or depression. Uh, it's it's just. Um, usually sit in the middle and you've got to be able to be fair and balanced to the individuals that it's affecting. You've got to give a calm response that's fair and reasonable um, and you've got to expect to be criticised at the end of it because because you will have uh, people that either don't know the precedents or don't know the, the issues and, and haven't gone through the layers of governance to be able to get to an ultimate answer. And how do you cope with that, Pat? Do they give you media training and things like that? Like how do they build resilience for um, public-facing roles like yourself? Uh, I, I have had plenty of media training. I don't think it's ever particularly helped. Um, the You know, I started playing for Australia my first time I, I was 19, so you have to face the cameras over a long period of time. Um, so this, you know, a good part of... You know, I think it was black and white TV at the time, but it, it, um, it was 25 years ago plus now that I, I, I first started doing interviews and the complexity of your interviewing gets more difficult as you get out of talking about yourself as a player. Then you might be a coach and you have to talk about your team. Then you, if you, as an administrator, you have to start talking what's in the best interest of the game and what's in the best interest of the community. And you might have international components. You might have to be concerned about how it affects other countries. And you're still going to be strong enough on your principles, of, even though it will offend some people to make change uh, because self-interest will obviously play a part in, in a lot of change management. Um you know, it, it, you have to still be able to have an opinion. So it, it's a, um, I think, getting in there, dealing with the core issue and um, whilst there might be a lot of noise around, you've got to be able to differentiate the core issue and the core problem. Uh, you mentioned the Steve Smith, Dave Warner thing, you know, it, it's um, and, and that period from that time. Um, 
and Cameron Bancroft. Cameron's often forgotten out of this process, mm-hmm. um, but uh, because it's not a bigger name, he's not as big a name as a consequence, um, and, and that's not fair on any of us. Um, but uh, there was a precedent set, you know. You know, a couple of months before, where um, two female cricketers had been banned for six months for a very small bet um, on their state cricket, and they got six months banned for betting on cricket. So automatically, the sanction had to be fair and reasonable to those people, and then that automatically set a bar that had to be played with. And you know, there was other people that wanted people sanctioned for life, and I didn't think that was reasonable either. And you then had ICC governance rules where the sanctions were one match, and that didn't seem fair and reasonable either in the circumstances due to the impact it had on the game of the country. So, um, and that's not the first time those sorts of things have happened. Um, you know, you deal with deaths in sport. How do you deal with those? They've happened uh, often both in rugby and in cricket and they are very tragic for those that are around, very tragic for the families um, and you want to show care and concern. You've also still got to be able to give continuity Um to those that need to be delivered on. So um, being able to be reactive and responsive um, is really important. Um, And I think um, trying to drill down to what is core in that versus what is noise, genuine white noise and everyone wanting an opinion um, is, is a skill that you have to learn over time. You've got a strong paternal line in rugby union. What was it like growing up with, you know, Famous father and grandfather. Uh, an honour, um, to be honest. Um, so I am far less proud of playing for Australia myself personally than I am of being a third generation Wallaby. It's a it's a lovely thing to link in with your father and your grandfather. Um, Obviously, my grandfather didn't get to see me play from Australia, but I was lucky enough that Dad was an assistant coach for Australia when I first started playing. So it is a very, very fond memory for me to be able to do that. Um, my mother is and was a rugby union coach. There's a very strong uh, theme. So I, I'm not quite used to this um, hashtag me too. I've been involved in that for a very long <laughs> time when my mother was coaching me and telling me to get closer and get tougher and get being stuck in. She was absolutely brilliant. And so she... She, in her own right, is a very um, uh, famous female coach or coach, just just a coach, uh, so um, no gender required. And um, I just uh, – I'm very lucky to have been involved in a family that um, was so passionate about something. So from pharmacy degree to cricket, how did that transpire, Pat? Yeah, it's interesting. And, and, you, and you talk about my father. My father's got a, a law degree. He uh, was once company secretary of an ASX listed company. He's also been a rugby coach. And um, so I, I, it's not a path that I've tread on my own. It was a little bit of a challenge, I think, he laid down to me. But um, no, I, I uh, got my pharmacy degree, uh, finished pharmacy, and I was already playing um, – I'd played a few tests for Australia at that side. Would definitely hadn't submitted myself in the team, but was in and out and moved down to Canberra and the game went professional at the time. So um, because I was fortunate enough to play when the game was amateur, I, I had a, a tendency to keep studying while I was playing and collecting qualifications during that period. Um, 
so whilst I was – it looked good on paper by the time I'd finished. Um, I didn't have any experience at all. Um, but, you know, sport does teach you a lot. It does teach you teamwork. I don't think it's just a line. Um, I think it deals with resilience. I do think players, even today, you know, their lives are played out on Instagram. They are very resilient. They have to deal with open criticism far more than my generation had to. And I've got a lot of empathy for – sportsmen today and how they have to be judged they they are a lot better than the generation before and probably the generation before that they have to be they're just lives are in a microscope um but i uh i bought my pharmacies i'm still director of rx pharmacy group um on my uh, my daughter turned 17 today and we we formed them the day she was born so um it's uh i know they're 17 years today and so we own pharmacies in sydney uh south australia and victoria and um i did that while i was playing uh as you noted i i was director of rugby in leicester once i'd finished playing I came back and headed the high-performance unit in rugby and I missed the birth of my fourth child, which so I was based in Sydney and um, had to look for a career change based in Brisbane. That's when I became Chief of Operations at Cromwell and that was a fantastic role. Um, I'd, I'd studied, um, you know, a bit of applied finance and investment. I had my MBA, so it, it was a, a nice fit and they wanted a, someone from outside to deal with performance and, and trying to bring accountability into the organisation. And it was a really good lesson that I, I said, look, I, I'm a master's, I understand property from a retailing side and, um, and it was a really interesting perspective that I thought it was just a line to get a job in an interview. What I found out is that external experience and looking at things from a very different perspective has been very, very handy in property. It was very, very handy in cricket. And even today in a, a new organisation, MSL, um, you know, you come in with a different perspective. And I think your collection of ideas that form good decisions is really important can't be your decision, but you listen to technical experts from differing variations and different degrees and you you can come up with better solutions at the end. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you briefly touched on before, um, Pat, about governance in sport and um, managing uh, deaths of players and things like that. Um, were you part of Cricket Australia when Phil Hughes' um, death happened? Yes, so I, uh, yes, I was, and um, and and I, I don't want to obviously, out of respect for the Hughes family, don't want to talk about it too much. Um, but look, it's um, uh, dealing with the period post that where um, we had to negotiate with the players to get them back out the out and play, um, which was very very difficult on them, um, you know. But you also, it was a very important thing to get back out and play. Mm. Um, and to keep keep the game going, but also for the players just to get out and enjoy the game again. You know, there was no expectation. And um, so, yeah, it was a very challenging period for everyone. I think the, the head of the players' union had joined only a month before, so that was a really difficult period for him. But he didn't really, you know, he'd say it today, it was a pretty big initiation. Mm. And... Um, Obviously, incredibly tragic for those that are on the on the pitch. Um, those around it was New South Wales versus South Australia at the SCG. Yeah. You know, I was talking to Michael Clark 
at the time and, you know, it, it was Michael, I was, you know, you better get in the car and off you go. So it's, it was a, um, a you know, it's, you don't want to trivialise. And look, I, um, by coincidence, I, you know, when I was working Cromwell, there was a death. Um, when in rugby union, I've seen a little bit of it as well um, with injuries and, um you know, you see it in sport, you see it in other walks of life and, um, you know, dealing with, you know, imagine working in the aged care sector as now as, as, as a few of my mates do, uh, have, you know, it's, it's a really challenging environment to be able to, um, be incredibly respectful of what is happening in an environment and sort of try and, um, minimise the effect for everybody that survives. So I, I, it, it, it's really tough. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And when you're dealing with human life as well, it's such a, um, you know, a heightened sense of responsibility and for everybody involved and probably from your, yourself, from your own perspective, having been um, various stakeholders throughout sport yourself, you know, a player, a coach, a leader, um how has that kind of helped you, um, I guess, rise into your uh, leadership in that space? Yeah, look, I, I do think it's helped, um, you know, being able to say, I've sat in your shoes and, um, you know, when you're talking to, you know, I sit on the QAU board and you're talking to the coaches and you can say, look, I've, I've been a coach and it does help. Or I, you're speaking to a player and you go, I've been a player. I get it. You're not trying to make mistakes. I understand. Um, you know, there is a very difficult thing from a media commentary where, you know, they'll say, the, you know, player X or player Y is terrible or hopeless or wonderful. And, and the truth is they make mistakes and they don't mean to and they want to be the best they can be and, um, yes, they might get paid X, but someone else might get paid Y. And it, it, it is um, – it's incredibly transparent, period. It is wonderful when you get back to sit back on your life and go, someone paid me to do what I love to do. That's brilliant. <laughs> I, I actually played in a period where they didn't pay you and as well. <laughs> And that was also brilliant. Well, it's for the love then, isn't it? <laughs> it was. And, and I played in both. I, I was lucky to earn an income from playing in the second half of my career. In the first half, I didn't get paid. And I loved both. I absolutely loved both. And um, and my father, as we talked about earlier, didn't get paid. And my grandfather before him didn't get paid. So um, that's all good too. I, I don't think pride or success necessarily has a lot to do with the level of remuneration you get paid. And it's something that um, I probably disagree with in governance that if you, that that money drives all the outcomes you need them to drive. I still believe when a sportsman walks under the field, regardless of what he's paid, he will genuinely care about winning and losing for his team and the people he plays with. And I think very special businesses and organisations can get to that point where they care so much about the outcome that they're working towards that really the remuneration becomes an afterthought rather than um, a driver of performance. And um, it's not always easy 
some products are really hard to do that with. There are some things you might be in a business that's pretty bland or something that's really generic. And you go, oh, you know, and that <laughs> you may need the remuneration to drive you. But um, I've always um, found that you can, you know, working in sport was lovely. I've really enjoyed MSL's got a nice ability to work around sport. Um, and, and I think working in, a, in in an environment at the moment where you're driving your products to actually cope with, you know, COVID outcomes and these sorts of things. Um, it's, it's been amazing how exciting that's been for people to produce things that can help people open and get them started again. And I think, um, you know, if you're, if you can see what you're creating gives you tangible outcomes, sometimes remuneration is not always the, the number one answer. Well, that's what I've found over time. Mm. Your experience as a player and as a coach, um, have you seen any sort of long-term effects of concussion in terms of short-term and long-term memory in particularly retired players? No, look, I, I don't. I haven't. And look, this is the pharmacist in me speaking as well. And I, I think, um, you know, obviously, once again, there's been a movie made and we've all got to um, understand that the... The, the rules around concussion have changed and I think we'll know a lot more in about 10 more years and a lot more in 20 more years. But it's very interesting to watch, you know, a sport which has got helmets um, when you're playing a football game is the one that most of the concussion you know, has been, been talked about. Um, you know, I, I haven't found that the people I played with have had any serious effects, and obviously, I had a father and a grandfather that, you know, were had very healthy lives, and um, and both passed away in their seventies, and um, had nothing to do with concussion. But I, I, I'm not arguing the science; it'd be hypocritical of me to do so. Um, but obviously, you have to be careful of it today. You've got to play with you. You know, if you if you have a concussion, you take the the player, the child, I coach under 12s and under 13s and coach in other areas. So you get a hit, sorry, mate, you're away for another couple of weeks and you come back when you're right. So um, I think there is a degree of danger in lots of things you do. And, you know, you go for, you know, every New Zealander would love to go down snowboarding. And these days we all make sure we stick our helmets on when we do. And I'll go cycling as well. And it's a very dangerous sport. You know, relatively in terms of, but I'm not going to stop doing that either. And so trying to balance out um, uh, risk versus um, making sure you have a mental health that is worthwhile, I think um, I think you'd take reasonable precaution and, and I think that's sensible and match your decision-making to the, the knowledge you have at that time. Yeah. But, you know, I, I have I do have some benefit of 25 years down the road and I, my, my wife may argue I'm not all right, but um, uh, generally <laughs> I'm, I'm okay. Yeah, you have very much a, um, a unique um, perspective and um, almost even the right balance between EQ and IQ um, coming from such a varied background. And um, so how have you, I guess, um, used some of that in your role presently as CEO of MSL and how have you managed through this um, coronavirus epidemic, uh, pandemic, I should say? Yeah, so I joined MSL in August um, 2019. I, I, I'd 
um, on the board of MSL, there are two directors that I've dealt with before. Uh, one, uh, chairman of Cricket Australia. So we had a, a relationship where I was exited and brought back in as a little bit of a change agent. And David Usas was on the board of Cromwell when I was there. And they, this was very much MSL, had some really great products. It's, um, you know, it is effectively the IT provider to Golf Australia, golf management systems. So it had a lovely sport side to it. And then it also has is, is got point of sale analytics in some of the best stadiums all around the world, the Manchester Uniteds and Manchester Cities and all these great sporting So there was a lovely bit where I could bring my property bit together with my sport bit and making sure that the oversight that I'd had in previous C-suite roles and management to, to bring it all together. But they had worked a little bit like some uh, listed ASX businesses work where it was all revenue-driven, but the bottom line was ignored. So you know, um, uh, MSL lost uh, sort of best part of $5.8 million in FY19. And if we've been continuing going down that track and COVID hit, it would have been you know, uh, an absolute nightmare. So fortunately, we've been making decisions to turn it around well before that. Um, still, the stadium base is excellent, but the first bit was to try and get your cost base right. So we're well down that route by the time uh, coronavirus hit. And much like um, the QAU board, which I sit on, um, and even the pharmacies that I, I work on, um, our pharmacies... Uh, a lot of them are in the Sydney CBD. So there's nobody in the Sydney CBD. And as a consequence, every one of those three businesses has to look at cash flow. They have to look at making sure they manage their cash flow through this period and try to drive um, sensible outcomes, uh, making sure you can look after your staff if you can. Now, many of our UK staff are furloughed, and the hope is that as we come out of this at some stage, that they will have jobs to come back to. And you want to be able to look after your stuff. You don't want all that IP going at the window. You want continuity, um, but you'll also have to be pragmatic. You know, you might have to lose some people to save the majority of people, and that is a. It's an. It's a. Um, you start. You stop worrying about you know, exponential growth and you talk about let's make sure we're here next month, make sure that we're driving, make sure we look after our customers' survival, we make sure we help them open. And if we help them open, then we can help them drive revenue and then we help our own sustainability in it. And I think one of the great things about this period is showing how interconnected and reliant so many businesses are, are on everyone else's business. That was yeah. a long-winded answer. <laughs> no, no, absolutely no. That answer was perfect, Pat. Um, so uh, QRU, tell us a bit about the, um, I guess, the hot topics of conversation around the board table at present with um, challenges with not being able to play games and players having to, you know, be in different places and all those sorts of things. Yeah, so we, we, the games have just started again about two or three weeks into to the games. Um, so I think getting people back out and playing is wonderful and being able to have a small crowd base. I went and watched the Reds play the Western Force last week at Suncorp Stadium. Um, but we've also got some great opportunities. Um, Ballymore, which is the big facility in the middle of, of Brisbane. Um, they've got some government grants, both federal and state um, opportunities that are, that are coming their way to make sure that this is a, a facility that can be a hub for not only rugby unions and a really unique part in northern Brisbane where you've got so many sports just there with Downey Park across the river and um, so many sports 
that can sort of work together. And, and you need to do that. You need to work with other sports so that everybody can be integrated. You know, rugby stadiums could be used for hockey. And when you work towards Olympic bids and those sorts of things, there's so many exciting things that you can do collectively if you think don't just park your sport on your own, actually work with other sports together. Because, you know, if you believe in your sport um, or your the sports you play, you know, you back it as an opportunity to play it and you, you're not defensive or hoarding your players from other sports. You know, I, you know, dealing with Elise Perry, who was a wonderful cricketer and soccer player, you know, trying to be able to help her manage through her multiple sports was a great learning um, and trying to help her maximise her talents through that period gave, gave you great affinity to want to be working with other sports. Um, QAU currently, um, you know, rugby in Australia is, you know, a second-tier sport compared to, say, New Zealand where it's a, you know, it's a number one sport, it's a national game. And, you know, you've got to be able to make sure you have a competitive advantage and find your place. So a lot of the staff have been stood down at the moment. They're still working, working their backsides off, Um I'm sure that's a technical term, um, <laughs> and um, but uh, you know the the grassroots of the game where I get to go and coach at under 12s or under 13s or on Sunday I was coaching um, down at West where all past players come down and we coach for free uh, any aspiring young kids any age between 12 and 15 and um, so there's some really lovely things to be involved in I feel as though I owe the game uh, as a father and grandfather before me I um, it doesn't owe me I owe the game and as a consequence if I can give back I do and that's my general philosophy on supporting rugby union I, I appreciate some people are critics at the moment but um, you know I've been through the highs and lows of sport too many times to get too worried about the highs and lows um, just keep helping keep trying to be supportive and try and look for solutions rather than problems that's really lovely to hear and it's lovely to hear you giving back to the community, Pat, that served you for a long period of time as well. So, And it's nice to hear that those kids are getting out there and have some really great role models to look up to. So, yeah, no, look. Yeah, yeah. you go. <laughs> no, no, I, I do. I, I, I love the game um, and it's always going to be part of uh, my life and, um, and uh and, and it's a wonderful thing to be able to support the game that's been so good to you. And I, I can trace so many of my opportunities back to uh, my sporting opportunities. Um, you know, I, when I worked in cricket, I used to say I loved cricket, but I owe rugby. And it's true. I love cricket. I, love, I genuinely love it as a sport. Um, I think it's fantastic. It, it is our national game in Australia, in my view. Um, but I also view I owe rugby and I'll continue to have those beliefs until someone commits me otherwise. <laughs> so, Pat, tell us a bit about, like, having been a player yourself and having to be able to successfully transition into a career in your own right now, how do um, sporting bodies support um, players who want to transition out of sport when they retire? And how do you, um, you know, do sporting clubs actually help facilitate some of that for the players? Yeah, there it's um, the best way I put it forward is, is a there's a buffet of support now, probably so far in excess of where it was in the past. In saying that, um, the reliance is still on the player, and it should be to step up and take those opportunities. So, I've seen some sportsmen in both cricket and rugby do it very, very well and transition incredibly well, um, and. 
you know, lots of the players that I've played with have done exceptionally well um, after playing sport. And in cricket, I saw, you know, some states drive it very, very well. Um, and other states, it wasn't the priority. And uh, you can see the differential. Well, you have a champion, um, you know, the – uh, George Bailey, who's a player at the moment in Australian cricket or just retiring. He's also now a selector. He's doing his MBA out of University of Tasmania. Um, he, he sends a message to all those players he played with that it's really important on how you transition out of the game. And, um, you know, you, you don't have to – people sometimes focus on the top three or four players and all that sort of stuff. It's more about the people who have a 10-year journey and their names aren't they weren't the best player, and but they were really great. They gave so much of their time, and how do they transition out? Because they're often those that can offer so much perspective and so much value because they've had to endure the highs and lows of sport. I think some people that are the absolute best, you know, they've um, they've had a less of a less of the bumps that a few of the rest of them have, and as a consequence. Um, you know, probably seeing it from other perspectives is hard, harder. I don't know. I wasn't. I wasn't one of the really good players. So, <laughs> um, so but it, it's. I found the similarities far more common than the differences across sports. So tell us a little bit about um, women's cricket in Australia, Pat. We've got some exceptionally talented young women cricket players. Yes, you must have seen that progress quite a lot. Yeah, I'm years. really proud. Yeah, I'm really proud of it and, um, you know, I sort of – so I – it was a long time ago now, but I was part of putting Meg Lanning in as, as head coach. I put the current uh, coach of the women's team in and they've – so I oversaw, you know, wins in 2012, uh, 2014 uh, and 2018 in the World T20s and a World Cup in 2013. It's hard to remember all the years. Um, but even, even sort of the creation of the women's BBL – um, which was, you know, gets really good viewing audiences. You know, more than more than the men's rugby union does, as an example, but more than men's soccer does, and all it does really, really well. And um, exceptionally proud to see, you know, that MCG game just get up before COVID nineteen or uh, coronavirus in in where they nearly packed out the MCG, which was amazing. Um, but look, they are. We talked about it a little bit earlier. You know, I've always found. You know that the very best players, regardless of what they get paid, train very, very hard, and that, and that has been the case the whole time. Um, there's incredible depth in Australian women's cricket. Um, they're really there's some world class players, and uh, there's talent elsewhere. You know, um, there are some very good players in lots of other countries that are probably not known to the players in to people in Australia. And um, I'm incredibly proud of you know seeing those players come through um, and even the talent pathways we've seen in the world T20 squad. I think there were, you know, one, maybe two, three, maybe teenagers in that squad. Um, so there's more depth coming through and there's a lot more talent and um, exceptional players are, are all the way around. So it's um, it's been incredibly positive to see its growth and um, I, think, I think it's a wonderful thing. How have you seen um, governance in sport evolve over that time as well, Pat? Yeah, look, I, I walked into a and in, in Australia, um, you know, you're talking about New Zealand. New Zealand don't have that federated model in governance anywhere near much as, as Australia does, and the federated model, um, I find, I, I've worked under both, and I much prefer that far degree of independence rather than a membership board. Um, it's 
the challenge, I, I saw the change of the Carter Crawford review in cricket um, and you were reporting to a board at that stage prior to that where there were lots of conversations regarding, um, you know, where is my player from my state and why aren't they getting the versus the, the changing conversation straight away went to what's in the best interest of Australian cricket. And that might be facilities in South Australia or facilities in Queensland or Indigenous support through NATSICAC in um, Northern Territory or WA or it, it became – I really enjoyed reporting under that under a new board structure where it was in the best interest of the game and state borders were lost and it was lovely. So you got to be able to invest in the places that needed investment rather than if I give $10 over here, I need to give $10 five times over to someone else that may or may not need the money. So it's, um, I've seen I've seen federated boards in sport and I've seen non-federated boards and I'm far bigger fan of that centralised and nationalised approach. Um, that's That's not a popular view because obviously there are six states and they will disagree with you. But um, uh, I I do love being able to go, look, if state X needs, you know, not even state, an area, the Karatha needs the most support, let's put the most support in the Karatha, you know, for example. And um, it's a very difficult thing that uh, Australia has grown up in that federated system. That's something that we have. And um, it would be a great thing to break down over time and the sports that have had to do it under best practice corporate governance guidelines um, released by the Australian Sports Commission a few years ago. Yeah, so, you know, what's happened is the um, Australian Sports Commission has put out, and it's, it's a couple of years old now, around best practice and corporate governance guidelines and, and it does talk about breaking down federalism and it does talk about working in the best interests of the national body and being able to put the right resources in the right states because some sports are, you know, very centralised to one or two states and others are um, quite national and and um, it's very hard for those states that aren't, you know, strong in one area to, to put their case forward. So, um, but the biggest sports, the, you know, there are three or four very, very big sports and, um, you know, my, my budget in cricket was bigger than the whole of rugby union's revenue um, just in my division, so it was, it was the biggest division. But it, it is something that they could work. I'm a strong believer in a nationalised approach. New Zealand has it. New Zealand rugby has it. Ireland rugby has it. And they're the best two countries there or thereabouts out of the smallest population. Um, but they've got centralised approaches, nationalised approaches. So having worked under sport and governance in sport and now um, and obviously with your position at Cromwell, um, Board of CRU and now MSL, how have you found um, the difference or similarities in terms of governance? So the the way I best describe this, and I've been asked about this many times, um, so I've obviously had a big period in sport over multiple different sports in a couple of different countries. And then I've had two C-suite roles uh, in listed companies. The difference I find comes down to a simple thing is that when you walk in sport, when you work in sport, the directors read the newspapers more than they read the board papers. And um, you don't have that issue in other situations. So what I mean by that is, and it's not a it's not a shot at the directors by any means, but it's when you haven't lived a life of public exposure, um, 
they're not used to their question their their decisions being questioned on a daily basis, even though they even they meet monthly. They're not used to it. And I've seen very, very high profile chairmen and CEOs find the exposure in sport far more difficult because they're criticized when they go down to their golf club. And they're not used to that. Um, so it does take a significant amount of resilience. Uh, you know, people still today don't know that I work at MSL. They assume I either work in cricket um, or um, am I doing something else related to sport? And I have to explain I'm not because the public exposure is not there. So you can just get your job done and you continue to grow your role and you do it well and you've got time to be able to execute. Sport, it's rarely like that. So um, that's the, the bit that I find different is that you have to help directors through on a month-to-month basis the highs and lows of media speculation, which they are unfortunately, um, if they're not used to it, it's, it's really hard for them to deal with. So, Pat, I'm preparing to um, have a chat to you today. We went on to the internet, the source of truth for everything. I'm just going to read, your, read a quote out from Wikipedia and just get your comment on it. Howard has received some criticism for this role with Cricket Australia. Shane Warne said in 2013, Cricket Australia should please put current cricket people in charge to run the game, select teams, not ex-rugby or any other sports people, and called Howard a Muppet. It's a compliment, isn't it? Kermit would say that's a compliment. Well, I think about three months after that, we won the Ashes 5-0. So, um, and then Shane actually, funnily enough, ended up, uh, we brought him in as consultant coach at the end of that 2013 series. And he was fantastic um, when we beat South Africa in South Africa just the early 2014. So, snapshots in time, you are going to be criticised and you... And I think the fact that I was an outsider was, um, as I've said earlier in this interview, it, um, I actually believed it really helped. And I had some fantastic, great, uh, great players that were reporting to me. And, I, and as I said to them often, look, if I can't convince you internally of these changes or these ideas, please call me up on this because if I'm not going to take them outside this room if you don't believe in what we're doing. And, you know, great names like Greg Chappell and Rod Marsh, these guys that I cannot put on a higher pedestal. They are just wonderful, wonderful people um, and I loved working with them. Um, and I really like Shane. I've got a lot of time for him. He's, he's a character, as you would imagine. <laughs> um, and I really, I would, you know, if he rang up and wanted to go to a rugby test match somewhere, I'd be happy to help him. He's a he's a really nice bloke. So, I I, I hold no ill towards any of those commentary. I understand things are said, um, and you take them all with a grain of salt. And I've always had that attitude. And I um, I really enjoyed my seven years in cricket. It was a, a great experience. Um, I've still got very strong relationships with those that I work very closely with, the previous CEO, some of the general managers, some of the coaches, selectors. Um, I just uh, I really, really enjoyed their company. Yeah, you've got a fantastic outlook, Pat, and a really amazing attitude. Um, so before we wrap up today, is there any sort of top three tips you want to leave our listeners with or just some lasting thoughts from your oh, perspective? I think, yeah, look, I've, you know, the three wise owls and, and dealing with um, governance itself, you know, um, 
the ability to have calm heads in a crisis, I think, is something that I've always enjoyed. Um, it was amazing uh, to deal with sometimes when a public perception um, had one view and a, a, a sporting team might have a different view and the board might be going, well, where do we land here? Mm. How do we um, do some – how do we have an appropriate answer? And it's amazing to see – directors who have who are calm in that situation you come out of that with incredible respect uh, for those people who can speak up when the room is turning mm. and uh, so I think for directors for chairman for uh, nomination committees getting your um, the balance and diversity of your Board, and I'm not even talking about gender diversity. Um, while I found that to be incredibly important, um, I'm even just diversity of thought, Absolutely. diversity of age, um, you know, diversity of backgrounds. Anything that's going to stop people coming from just one singular mindset. Um, I care that people care about what they're doing. I think that's always important. Um, differentiating between people on a board that are doing it for a CV build versus someone that genuinely cares about um, making a difference, helping, guiding. Sometimes it might be making money and that's okay too. Um, so they're the couple of things that I have found more in reporting to boards than sitting on boards. Um, you know, if – but um, I, uh, I've been – you know, I love the challenge of governance. I love being able to convince a room that this is a good idea even when you're going to cop criticism, even when you know that it could be unpopular but it's right. Um, I've really enjoyed that challenge um, and even being hauled over the calls when it goes wrong later on. Um, <laughs> it, it, that's okay too and it, that requires um, courage from directors and it requires courage from a room and um, it's wonderful when you see uh, an alignment between directors and management that, that achieve really great outcomes. That's music to our ears. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, they're really great tips, Pat, and thank you so much. You're really such a great leader, and I think um, it'll be really exciting to continue watching your journey going forward. So thanks for joining us today and sharing your insights with our listeners, and, yeah, it's been great talking to you. Thanks, thanks for asking me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thank you. <laughs> That's all for today. Until next time, happy podcasting. And remember, if you're enjoying the show, check out our other episodes and all things governance at www.threewiseowls.com.au.